Welcome to Emerging, the official podcast of the Trout Unlimited and Costa Five Rivers program presented by Sims. Emerging is about enabling the young angling community to drive progress in the fly fishing industry and the conservation of the places we love to fish. My name is Joseph Burney. I'm the current Five Rivers Communications intern and will be your host along with Andrew Lafredo. For our first episode, we sat down with Chris Wood and Franklin Tate to talk about the Five Rivers program and what Trout Unlimited has been doing to engage the next generation of anglers and conservationists. We hope you enjoy. Well, everyone, it's the first one. I'm pretty excited about it. Andrew, you pretty excited? Oh, absolutely glad to be here. So... I guess uh, we'll just introduce this podcast a little bit, considering I think that'd be fair to the listeners. But Emerging, like we said in the intro, is all about the young angler and conservationist and what's next for us and why all this conservation stuff matters and what can we, what can we be doing to just make everywhere that we love to fish better for us and better for the people down the road. And I think that's really exciting. My name is Joseph Burney. I'm a student at the University of Georgia. I'm a senior and loved all my time with Five Rivers and at University of Georgia. I get to co-host this with Andrew Lafredo, who's the man. Would you want to introduce yourself just a little bit? Yeah, um, totally. Um, I'm Angela Fredo. Um, I'm the first fibers coordinator. Um, I got this job right out of college, fortunately, uh, thanks to Franklin, who's going to talk next. But um, I was uh, I was president of the Virginia Tech Club um, before I got this job and uh, was here at the uh, right opportunity. But, um, you know, it's, it's great to see how fibers has grown and meet students around the country and yeah, passionate they are and, and give cool opportunities for students like you, Joseph, to, uh, you know, get involved in the industry. So Sweet. So Franklin, uh, Franklin, welcome to the first ever. Do you mind introducing yourself? Thanks. Yeah, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's uh, Franklin Tate with Trout Unlimited. Um, been here um, a little over 10 years, 11 years or so, uh, direct the Headwaters Youth Program, which is uh, uh, Trot Unlimited's, um, you know, outreach program to young people starting around, gosh, you know, preschool all the way up through college age. Um, we do a lot of watershed education. We do a lot of angling education. A lot of our efforts are driven by our uh, talented and passionate grassroots members across the country um, and five rivers is a big part of that um, with the club system on campuses uh, nationwide. So really glad to be here and um, super excited to hear what you guys uh, get done with this podcast series. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for joining in Franklin and Chris, would you, uh, would you mind giving yourself a nice little introduction? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, my name is uh, Chris Wood, and I'm the uh, head waiter and chief bottle washer at Trout Unlimited. Um, Love it. I'm really excited also to <laughs> – right, I'll, I'll tell you my real title. I'm the president and CEO, but I'm, I'm really excited to uh, be part of this 
podcast and to celebrate all the great work that Five Rivers uh, and really the entire organization, as Franklin said, are doing to engage uh, more folks in conservation. That's what it's all about. Yeah, and thank you for taking the time to come on here and talk about conservation and places we love with us. It looks like, Andrew, you got a little guest with you as well. Is that Banjo? <laughs> yeah, a little Banjo. Uh, he's a little much. He, uh, he won't leave me alone. So, uh, yeah, a little Boston Terrier mix. So, he's very friendly. Yeah. Guess, he's not a flatfish, though. Guess he's just he's made himself. Up to his name, you know. <laughs> he's always on the left. Yeah. You know, the, the lack of opposable thumbs are crippling uh, for learning, <laughs> not being able to learn how to fly fish. <laughs> well, well uh, I think that this is a good way to kind of kind of start, get all the juices flowing, is if, Chris, I guess I'll point this at you and open it up to the floor, but if you could fish one place in the world for the rest of your life, where would it be? Um, do I have to pick one? Mm, I, do you think you can do that or maybe <laughs> we'll give you two? I, I'll All allow right, two. Fine, fine, fine. Okay, fine. Since you are going to allow me two, I'll go to the roots and then I'll go to my favorite place. So I love fishing, um, on the Quijack river, uh, which is one of, uh, seven tributaries that flow into Bristol Bay in Southwest Alaska. The Quijack has not only the system has not only, uh, it supplies half of all of the world's wild sockeye salmon that are commercially caught. Um, it's companion river, the Nushigak right over the Ridge, uh, is one of the finest Chinook or King salmon fisheries in the world. But the reason I love to fish the Quijack uh, is that every time you cast, you have an opportunity to catch a potentially 30-inch uh, native rainbow trout that move out of a place called Lake Iliamna uh, to feed on the carcasses and the eggs of all the salmon that come into that river system. The first time I ever hooked the Quijack fish, I was standing with my buddy Brian Kraft, who owns Alaska Sportsman's Lodge, and we were drifting what they call flesh flies, which are what you think. They're big, ugly, you know, patterns that imitate salmon flesh that's drifting downstream. <laughs> and so it, I was at the end of my drift and I was about to lift my cast, my rod to cast. And uh, boom, you know, I felt this hit. And I said, there he is. And uh, off to my right, maybe like on a right angle, 35 yards away on my right, I saw this fish leap out of the water and I turned to Brian and I said, did you see that fish jump? And he said, yeah, that's your fish. <laughs> and that's how big, <laughs> big and strong these fish are. I mean, the first rainbow I caught out of the Quijack was so big. Uh, I mean, these it just had shoulders on them. Um, it's really hard to describe, you know, for people who are used to catching these anemic cookie cutter hot dog sized hatchery trout to, to tie into one of, you know, God's creations in this ecosystem that is exactly as it was, um, you know, 
uh, a millennia ago. There's something super cool. And then the other one, since you gave me a twofer, is I learned to fly fish at this little place, or at least I didn't learn there, but at least I had a lot of fun doing it, was at a little place called Queechee Lake in Columbia County, New York. And just a little 60-acre lake, and um, that's kind of a special place for me because it's where I really discovered, you know, a lot about fly fishing and, and spin fishing. I used to spin fish a lot too. I would troll for, for uh, lake trout there. But uh, anyway, those are my two favorite places. Wow. That was, that was a really uh, more answer than I thought I was going to get there. That's amazing. I mean, I, I guess I'll go, <laughs> I'll go next. I don't have stories of 30 inch rainbow trout jumping and nice streamer eats, but I think, for me, growing up in the in the South, and I, I got into fly fishing when I was in high school about six years ago now, and my favorite spot, and if I were just only fish it for the rest of my life, would be up in North Carolina. There's a set of woods that are not to be named where I find really nice brook trout on a consistent basis eating dry flies. And anyone from the like Southern App- Appalachia would agree with me that those spots are special. And I, uh, I love taking people there and I just, there's something about catching those little brook trout in the mountains secluded from everyone that that's really special. And, uh, I wish that we had more of them still down in Georgia, but that, that has to be mine without a doubt. Yeah, I guess, um, I guess I'd have to say Florida. Um, I think, uh, when I was born in Miami, um, grew up in the mountains of North Carolina, went back to Florida for high school, um, went down to the Keys, before I was fishing a lot, went down to the Keys, did a lot of diving, and um, have fished the Panhandle of Florida and fished um, sections of the coastline along the Atlantic, uh, fished the Everglades. Um, so for me, I just have to say Florida's got it's got it all. It doesn't have the uh, – it's not always, um, you know, the towns and the, the cities and the places you stay aren't, aren't really as nice as, as trout country places such as Montana or – Oregon or Idaho are up in the Northeast, but, um, the fishing is, um, can be really, uh, amazing. Um, everything from jacks to tarpon, to snook, to permit, to bass, to peacock bass, <laughs> it just goes on and on. Um, so I think Florida gets a big shout out from me and that's probably the place if I could only pick one place, I know it's a fairly large place, but, uh, that's my uh, that's my twofer. I get to pick a place that's pretty big, um, but yeah, that uh, Sunshine State for me. I had some fun tearing up the the peacock bass in South Florida this past summer. They're they're a really really fun fish, and you find them everywhere. Yeah, that's awesome. What about you, Andrew? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's a hard, that's a loaded question. That's super hard. Um, I'll just say that the, I'd say the, uh, state of Wyoming, 
Whole, the whole state. <laughs> I'm just going to name a whole state. And if you go, you know. You got to know. <laughs> Love it. So, Wind River, Great Bowl. <laughs> Platinum <Plank>. Cow. <laughs> No, I don't know. Um, there's a ton of uh, cool places. Um, I'd say some of my favorite places are definitely uh, Wyoming or Montana. Um, nothing, nothing cooler than a Yellowstone cutthroat trout, in my opinion. Native, native and cool fish. That is that is a that's a fish that's definitely on my on my bucket list of of fish. I've I've been out west and been to Montana once and fished in the park for a couple of days with the sole intent of catching a Yellowstone cutthroat and was sadly there in the middle of runoff. So I had no luck there. Yeah, that's a bummer. So Chris, I know that this is probably a loaded question for you, but as the president and CEO of uh, TU, what is your, uh, your favorite species of trout or char or salmon for that matter? You know, I love little brook trout, those little beautiful jewels that inhabit uh, northeast rivers and high elevation. Super good indicators of clean water. Um, and just, you know, absolutely stunning fish. Those are, I would have to say, the brook trout are my, my favorite of all the trout. Yeah, I find them uh, astounding uh, in places. Too, you know, like just little little ditches or uh, things that don't look like they would have trout in them. Uh, trout seem to find yeah. their way into those areas. Yeah, I'll t- tell you a story. So I grew up in the great state of New Jersey and um, didn't, I grew up playing sports. I didn't hunt or fish until really later. And so I went to college. I got into fishing and hunting didn't come uh, until even after that. But um I was on a tour a few years ago with an incredible uh, biologist, a woman, I think her name is Pat Fleming, if I'm getting that right, from the state of New Jersey. And I was there with some of our great TU volunteers, people like August Goodmanson and the late and great Rick Eagy was there, Brian Cowden, Rick Axt, a few others. And uh, it took me to this stretch of river uh, it was a tributary of the Muskinetcon, where we had done a lot of dam removal and restoration. And it was bound on one side by an interstate highway, this little tributary. And it was bound on the other by a railroad bed. And we had to walk through an illegal dump to get there, right? Some contractor had dumped a bunch of like sheetrock and other building materials. And you could tell the trail that we were walking down was an ATV trail that actually bisected this little creek. And I was like, why the hell are they? I mean, I, I grew up in New Jersey. I've seen these places, right? It's like, why are you taking me here? There's nothing I want to see here. Uh, it's another impacted system. And we got to the water's edge and Pat said, you see over there? And she pointed to this green vegetation. She said, do you know what that is? And I said, uh, is it watercress? And she said, yeah, it's watercress. That's an indicator of a healthy river. I said, oh, how about that? Uh, she said, this is a spring-fed system. These springs come up all through here. And even though this river has all these impacts to it, you see those little fish swimming under the watercrest? And I looked really carefully, and I could see, because I had polarized glasses on, and 
I could see there were some small fish swimming underneath. And I said, yeah, yeah, I see them. She said, you know what those are? And I said, no, no idea. She said, those are heritage strain brook trout. So these are brook trout that have been unaffected by stocking. They are the, the strain of brook trout that were there, uh, you know, when the glaciers receded and that river was formed. And they have survived the construction of a major interstate highway of a railroad grade being right next to the creek, of illegal dumps, of ATVs running up and down and through that river, and they're still there. And they're these little speckled jewels. Um, even in the most highly urbanized, urbanized state in the Union, those brook trout are there, and they give us hope, right, that if we can bring back brook trout in New Jersey, uh, by gosh, there's little we can't do when it comes to trout conservation. That's incredible. I, I'm shocked that you could, uh, you must have some pretty good eyesight if you can see a brook trout, even with polarized glasses. I find myself squinting a lot when I'm looking for them. <laughs> well, I, I don't have good vision, but I could see these fish. And I, you know, I think it was in part, you know, because there probably wasn't a ton of cover there and that watercrest, Pat knew they'd be there. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we she walked to that spot for a reason. Sometimes, you know, you have these experiences and you wonder, am I being set up? Like, did somebody just release those fish like moments before we got here? There was a you know, somebody from the DNR who dropped those fish in there. But no, it's one of the coolest experiences I've ever had at TU. These fish, you know, it, it just shows how incredibly resilient they are. Just give them half a chance if we just protect their, the best habitat they have left and then restore the areas that are likely to bring these fish back, they'll come back. I mean, if they can survive in that kind of habitat, think about what they can do in areas that we actually, you know, bring back to health. Yeah. And it's, it's super encouraging to see fish populations thriving and in places you wouldn't expect. I see it on my home river, the Chattahoochee, all the time that's going through a major metropolitan area. Um, it's funny, I'm actually wearing a shirt from our TU chapter in Atlanta. It says straight out of the hooch. But the fact that we get natural brown trout reproduction in that river around Atlanta is insane. I, it's a tailwater, but I think that it's crazy that you have millions of people living around this river putting fertilizer in their yards and everything. And you still have this natural reproduction of a, of a trout going on and providing an amazing fishery for so many people. Yeah. Very cool. So Chris, another, another question for you. So you explained going back to your roots of being on the lake and learning how to fly fish and going trolling for lake trout is that the source of you wanting to conserve places like that or where is your where's your roots in wanting to become a conservationist and get involved into you yeah that's a funny story and it's a long story but i won't i'll give you the short version um so i grew up in new jersey you know uh you know, as I said, I didn't, I didn't fish. I didn't even know what fly fishing was. And I went to Vermont and I got really into fishing. Um, in fact, my buddy Rick and I would have days where we would go fishing 
And what I meant by, what I mean by days where we went fishing, we would start at like 6 p.m. and we would fish until 6 p.m. the next day. <laughs> um, we were mostly spin fishing then. And I got into fly fishing because I was in this program called the Big Brother, Little Brother program. And I had a special needs kid as my little brother. And uh, his therapist thought that fly fishing, you know, would be relaxing for him, you know, which in hindsight is pretty funny to think about, you know, <laughs> it's like I, for a beginner, fly fishing can be really frustrating, you know, with all the knots and everything. But totally. Uh, so anyway, I got into it. Yeah, I thought, right. So that's how I got into it. But then when I graduated, I was, uh, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. When I graduated college, I was making ice cream in New Jersey and I was coaching high school football. I was bartending a little bit. Uh, by the way, I was coaching at St. Peter's Prep and Alma Mater, and they won the state championship that year. Thank you very much. Nice. Um, <laughs> but uh, my buddy Mick invited me to go to Alaska. And uh, one day he let me take his, he was staying in Homer. And I, I was staying with him. We were camping on the Homer Spit, which is a little stretch of beach there. And uh, he said, hey, why don't you take my, my uh, car and drive down to the Kenai Peninsula? And so, which I did. I drove down to the Kenai Peninsula, and I went to this place called the Anchor River. And I got to the, the where the river hit the salt, you know, sometime around, I don't know, 6 o'clock or whatever. And I set up my camp and everything. I had a can of Dinty Moore beef stew and, um, you know, I read for a while and then I went to bed and uh, I was on the beach. And so I woke up at like three in the morning, with the water coming in my tent. And the thing about, you know, New Jersey, we have like foot and a half tides, you know, maybe two feet tides. Um, in Alaska where I was, they had 10 foot tides. And, and the real problem wasn't the, fact that water was coming in my tent it was the fact that the vw rabbit was parked in front of the tent <laughs> so, so i didn't get out the next day till like four o'clock in the afternoon i had to get somebody to pull me out of there i got like four cans of gum out i cleaned the engine i got everything started got the car running again so you got aqua uh, pretty much yeah the, 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 thanks for the gum out uh, and I started walking up the Anchor River with my fly rod to fish for silver salmon. Nick had said, you should try fishing for salmon. And I said, cool, all right, I've heard of salmon. So I'm walking up the river, and I had a box of flies that somebody had, you know, I bought or whatever. And I start seeing these giant dead and dying fish in the river. And I remember distinctly taking my uh, Orvis Green Mountain Series, you know, starter fly rod and touching one of these fish that was kind of half in and half out of the water with the tip of my rod and then watching it sort of like a zombie fish slither back into the stream current. And I thought, holy cow, I can't believe this. It's taken me all these years to get out of New Jersey, to get to a place like Alaska. And clearly what's happened here is that somewhere upstream, a train or something fell off a railroad trestle and dumped a bunch of acid in the river and that's killed these fish because they were, they had these big humps on their backs and they were like sloughing off flesh and, uh, you know, totally deformed and more dead than alive. And so I walked upstream a little further and 
this guy was fly fishing and I was watching him stand in the middle of the river and casting and he was watching me watch him. And after a while he looked at me and he said, what? Like, like, what what are you looking at? And I said, well, what are you doing? And he said, um, fly fishing. I said, aren't you worried about whatever killed all these fish getting on you? And, and he looked at me and he goes, dude, those are salmon. Like that's just part of the deal with salmon. And I, I just think to this day, I remember exactly what I said. I said, uh-huh. Okay. And I, I never, to this day, I have never stepped foot in the Anchor River. I want to, but I walked back to Mick's car, his VW Rabbit, which is now nice and shiny. And I drove to the Anchorage Public Library and I took a book out on salmon. And I discovered that, in fact, that guy was not lying. That these incredible creatures, they, they're born in the fresh water. Uh, they stay there for a couple of years and then they, they, they get pushed downstream by the flow of the current. And um, they'll stay in the ocean for a few years and grow. Uh, and then they'll go back to their very, and, and they'll go on these awesome migrations that cover half the world. And then they'll go back to the very stream that they were born in. And they'll have sex one time before they die. And then their bodies provide the nutrients that allow their offspring to survive. And I remember reading about that by firelight, uh, you know, on the banks of the Anchor River on the Kenai Peninsula and thinking, that's it. That's what I want to do. And so I went home and I, I wrote a letter of resignation from the ice cream factory. I kept my commitment to the football team. I finished coaching the year. And uh, the morning I got home, it was a Monday morning, and my father came downstairs and saw me looking at the paper. And he said, hey, what are you doing here? Because I was supposed to be at work at the factory. And he said, I said, Dad, I'm not going to work there anymore. He said, what are you going to do for a job? And I, I, I pointed to the paper, and that day, as fate would have it, in the New York Times, there was a picture of a guy named Keith Edwards who worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service. And the caption above the fold of the paper said, it saddens me that I work in a lake that's named for a fish that doesn't return anymore. And that was the year that one sockeye salmon made that 850-mile journey back to Redfish Lake in the sawtooth of Idaho, traversing eight dams, avoiding all kinds of predators, including us. And, and not another salmon made it back to spawn with him. And uh, I pointed to the paper and I said to dad, I'm going to, I'm going to save the salmon dad. And uh, I tell you that story for a reason, because I, I go to work every day with the same optimism I had that day that in fact, I will save the salmon. Now I'm not going to do it alone. I'm going to do it because of Franklin and Andrew and, 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 and lots of other people at Trout Unlimited and lots of our partners and other organizations that also want to save the salmon. But um, that's how I got into it. And, and, and I think part of the reason this story is important is that I was a, you know, political science, American literature, kind of liberal arts guy when I went to school. And there's probably a lot of people who were in Five Rivers programs and they got their degree in a liberal arts you know, subject like I did and they're figuring out like, what, what do I do next? And I just think that conservation is a wide open field for people who want to give back and who want to make the world a better place. And so anyway, that is a long winded way of telling uh, my story about how I got involved in conservation. 
what an incredible story. <laughs> I, uh, that, that fires me up a little bit about, about conservation for sure. And I think that that is really incredible. And back in a time when we didn't have phones and Google and all of that right at the ready that you went over to a, a library, pulled a book at, pulled a book out. (laughs) And I mean, that's just not something that our generation like goes through. We don't like, I don't read the paper in, in, uh, print. I read it on my phone or I get it through other places now. And just the timing and the fate and that is just incredible. Yeah. I think, you know, I think at the risk of fossilizing itself, and, and Franklin is keeping studiously quiet here because he and I are of the same ilk and same generation. But uh, this is why I think uh, this generation are frankly more in tune with conservation issues than mine was. You know, it's like I had to, I had to see, I, here I was growing up in the most urbanized state in the country. And I just kind of figured it was like that everywhere. I didn't, I had no idea. I had never left New Jersey until I went to college other than to go to Ireland to visit family. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think today the proliferation of information has made, uh, people who are younger, better advocates and better conservationists. And they want to get more involved than, than my generation did. I didn't know anybody going to school who gave a rip about conservation. And I think it's a totally different deal today. It's a front of mind issue for lots of young people. And our job is to make their entryway into becoming advocates at TU as easy as we possibly can. And Chris, uh, just a just a follow up to that. Um, speaking of you know just being plugged in, I definitely think that that's true. Um, and I think also social media. Um, and its growth has also led to people being able to feel like they're communicating and their message is getting out. The barrier to getting messages out are no longer uh, held with newspapers and uh, an editorial right piece to, to getting your message out. So um, I think that there's a lot more opportunity for young people to get out and get involved. But uh, my question to you is, um, what is the most pressing uh conservation issue that college students should be aware of today this can be uh holistic or this can relate back to trout or salmon yeah yeah it's i mean it's a it's a it's a great question and it's one that um obviously we think about a lot at at tu but i think uh the most important thing college students can 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 the most important issue, conservation issue for college students to consider is, you know, how we, how we keep the nest clean. Um, you know, we have this incredible gift that's been given to us in terms of clean water and healthy lands that provide our food, that provide our energy, that provide our, our, our income in many cases, um, and, and make life on earth, frankly, possible. And, to some extent, we've been frittering it away. And, uh, you know, the ability to, we, we talk at Trout Unlimited about, you know, protecting trout and salmon and the habitats they depend on. 
and and you can look at that as incredibly narrow. Well, they're just a bunch of anglers who you know want to protect what's theirs. Or you can say the trout and salmon or the canary and the coal mine for healthy lands and waters that allow this incredible great enterprise that we call civilization to occur. And and the better able we are to protect those canaries in the coal mine, those trout and salmon, the, the more likely we are to pass on intact a healthy land and water legacy to, to those that we know we hope <laughs> we, we hope and we know because we're optimists will come after us. And so that whole question of how we sustain um you know, how we sustain the planet in the face of climate change, in the face of more development, in the face of population growth. That's clearly, to me anyway, the central challenge that uh, college kids should be thinking about today. I completely... Yeah, absolutely. Oh, go ahead, Joseph. Sorry. I, I completely agree with that. And I guess I would I would follow up with that to rope, rope you, Franklin, into this uh, and Andrew about what five rivers is and where we can come into the picture with, with those issues that Chris just mentioned. Yeah, I think, um, you know, five rivers is really here to create a spark, um, for a young person that's in one of these clubs. It's, um, it's kind of to provide some sort of anchor river equivalent, although probably on more of a domestic, maybe lower 48, (laughs) scale but i think you know um we we see these students come back to our meeting to our meetings and our meetups and our um our rendezvous events and they have a they have a real connection to the people and to the places and i really think that if we're going to have a chance of of gaining that sustainable um economy of gaining the sustainable livelihoods as people we're going to need to understand how conservation works and why conservation matters. And so I think probably one of the best things that Five Rivers does is just provides a spark uh, along the, the pathway for these, these young people to say, well, I never really thought about it that way, or wow, that was a really cool story, or wow, I got to go fish uh, a river that I never even heard of. And, you know, I, I tell people a lot that maybe these 20-somethings aren't, going to be the trout unlimited chapter president right away i remember uh, one of our chapter leaders was really upset because an 18 year old uh tu teen had graduated um from our our teen leadership program and the chapter had invested in him and but then he got a girlfriend and he went to college and he kind of vanished and the chapter member was really upset by this and i said he'll come back you just you know you're talking about the most dynamic and incredible time of his life right <laughs> and uh, you can't you can't really expect that somebody's um going to be back at the chapter meeting as a as a 20 year old when they got so many else other things going on but i do think give them five years give them 10 years um they will be back uh we we are making a um you know we're imprinting the tu brand and the tu approach into their brains, whether they even realize it, they're like lonely. Larry will be coming back, right? Um, these students will be coming back to the to the natal <laughs> source, and um, that's a great thing. Uh, that's something that uh, we. It's really hard to measure, but it's a great and positive thing for the organization. 
Andrew. Yeah, I'll just I'll just echo what Frank I'll just echo what Franklin said. You know, the other thing to think about is we have this kind of model right now where we have four hundred chapters and once a month, Thursday at seven o'clock, they have a meeting someplace. And and that's not gonna be for everybody, you know? Um but what if what if instead of having that as a model, the model was that, we keep that. But then we also say, hey, we're doing a stream cleanup on Saturday. And by virtue of coming and participating in this cleanup, you're going to become a member of Trout Unlimited. And we're going to alert you to other future stream cleanups. Or, hey, we're doing a, uh, you know, an, uh, a community science effort where we're going to, like, look at, like, water quality and dissolved oxygen and teach you to take these uh, readings for us that we're then going to use to advocate for cleaner water in these communities. Oh, and by the way, you're now going to be a TU member just by coming for a few hours on Saturday and helping out with that, that job. That, I think, is the future of this organization. It's going to be less about people going to chapter meetings. We'll keep that model because Franklin's right. At a certain point in people's lives, typically when their kids have left the house, and, and, and they have more free time. So often when people are retired, they like to get together once a month and, you know, talk about conservation, talk about fishing. But for most people, everyone on this call included, I imagine, we're kind of busy, right? We're, we got careers. We have families. Thursday, my kids play baseball games. That's where I'm going to be. I'm not going to a chapter meeting. But I still want to support TU. And if they tell me about something cool that's happening in my community where I can give back, where I can help a kid learn how to fish or learn how to tie flies, or I can make a stream cleaner or contribute to, you know, knowledge about conservation by, by being a citizen scientist, I'm in, I'm totally in. And I think that's where we're going to, that's where we're going to go. And that's where we have the greatest hope, I think, to drive a membership that's based on engagement as opposed to a membership that's based on meeting once a month. Yeah, and just to follow up on Chris and Franklin, too, I think the exciting part of, of this, too, for switching to a more engagement-focused model is that, uh, you know, we're the young people coming up in, uh, you know, under 30. I'm under 30. Um, you know, we see the problems in society, and uh, I think, we're more privy to that um, with uh, digital, uh, you know, platforms like Facebook, Instagram. You can get uh, any information anytime you want from the touch of your fingers. Um, and what we do with this knowledge, how we make it, uh, you know, conservation, the world a better place. And, and what's cool about fly fishing and, and just fishing in general and, and hunting and hiking and exploring uh, outside opportunities, um, you know, we have an opportunity to dictate its future. We're young enough that we can make substantial change um, and, and how we want that change to be. And I think Fires is just a uh, platform for young people to uh, express their opinions and, and uh, get more involved into, you know, the fly fishing and conservation space. So um, exciting times nonetheless. I just want to take a break for a second to recognize that while we're talking about this amazing community we have in Five Rivers and Trout Unlimited, that it really looks a lot different right now because of the pandemic. Hope that 
all of you have been able to use this time to rediscover the joy of public lands and rivers, but even exploring those places looks a lot different right now. We at Emerging want to encourage everyone to recreate responsibly and explore all the other people recreating responsibly over at the hashtag responsible recreation on social media. So thanks to everyone for doing your part to keep your friends, families, and communities healthy. And until this uncertain time is over, we hope you stay safe. So let's get back to the episode. I was talking to one of your counterparts, Morgan Stum, who uh, was the head of the Five Rivers program at Frostburg State. I think she graduated recently, Franklin. Um, or Andrew, one of you guys may know. And and she said, you know, when we would do a stream, we, we would, as a Five Rivers club or chapter, they would organize stream cleanups. And um, if it was all about going down and, and, and angling and fishing, they'd get three or four people who would come. But if they said, hey, we're going to go down and we're going to do a big trash pickup, they get like 10, 12, 15 people who would want to go down and hang out by the river and be near the water. Oh, yeah. And make the river a little healthier, a little cleaner. Um, that's the difference, right? We've always kind of led with fishing in the past. And I, I obviously, you know, uh, we're never going to turn away from our our origins as a a group of conservation-minded anglers, but if we can make the enterprise a little bit more interesting to people who just want to give back, but they're not really into fishing, I think that's a, that's a game changer for us. And that's a place that, you know, we intend to invest. And I think there's a good place for angling too, where I find that an example, use my brother as an example of, if you get someone to love fishing or if you get someone involved in fishing, inherently they're going to start caring about the places that they do it. And my brother who's 13 years old, the other day we were fishing and he loves it. He, we try to get out every opportunity we can. And he was asking me why all these, all the hemlock trees were dead and basically got to sit down and have a conversation with him about why hemlocks are important and what they mean for the fish and all that stuff. And I think that like, even as a 13 year old, he was able to identify and start caring and looking around the places that he fished rather than just focusing on catching. And I think that goes for, for most people. Yeah, I think, I think you're right there. Um, you know, uh, I think that that's why, uh, urban fisheries get a bad rap, right? Because, uh, people want to escape, uh, to a more pristine environment to, sit, to to immerse themselves, I think, right? Yeah, but why not just make your urban stream a place you can clean up? I, I, I think that no, it provides oh, so absolutely. many opportunities, but yeah, you're totally right. You want to escape, and I escape to the North Carolina mountains, but at the same same time, I I love the urban streams around around Atlanta and this area, and I think that you're, you're right. You nailed that. You, I'm going to edit that out. You nailed it right on the head. Hit the nail on the head. I, well, I and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll echo that. I'm a, you know, you guys kind of caught, I know that, uh, I should have known that question about where I left the fish was coming, but I love fishing the Potomac river 
and some of the tributaries to the Potomac, like Rock Creek in Washington, D.C. I, I absolutely love it, you know, and it's my home water. It's a couple stones throws away from my house and, and the fishing is awesome. So there's a lot to be said for realize, realizing that the conservation that's most local is going to be most durable. And the more we can ground what we're doing in the places that we live and we fish, the more likely they are to succeed. I just think that's a, just a truism. Yeah. Well, and more, yeah, and more and more, we're going to need to be thinking about sustainability um, as part of the lesson for young conservationists, because we've got finite resources and to travel halfway around the world to fish is, is great. It's a fun thing to do, but in terms of staying local and, you know, using less gas and um, patronizing your local shops and trying to do more with what's within 50 miles or maybe 100 miles is is really important. You know, so I guess it goes back to that. Remember the old bumper sticker that was uh, was it was it think think globally, act locally, or something like that. And that's that's really a TU model too because of the way our chapter structure is. We've got all these little. We've got all these little um, micro level um, chapters that in, in each watershed and they're keeping an eye on things and they're taking care of, of places. And um, it's a pretty effective way for us to teach sustainability, to, to know your local streams and to, to be that community scientist that knows when the something's not quite right. Um, so I think the sustainability piece, is something that we can continue to do more with at Five Rivers. And I think that will track that broader base that Chris is, is referencing about the, the strategic plan. I think that um, there are, with diversity comes some, some sense of how to sustain diversity, how to appeal to a larger group of people. Um, and so Five Rivers can be a sort of a microcosm of that. We can take a look at how it works and then how we might be able to do more with that at the, at the national level. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And this, this Chris, I think I'd love for you to chime in on this too, Franklin, but what's, what's a piece of advice that you would give to a college student if they were interested in, following a career in wildlife management and conservation or even ways that they can continue to be involved, even if they're like, say they're an accounting major, something completely non-related to conservation. So kind of a two part question, but I would love y'all's input on that. Uh, yeah, I'll go first because I'm sure that Franklin's going to have a more profound answer than I, um, <laughs> I about that. you know, it doesn't matter what you major in. My whole career is, is testament to that fact. I was a political science major in American literature minor. I had no idea about the life cycle of salmon. I had no idea that they died after they spawned. I, I knew nothing. I literally knew nothing. <laughs> and um, so I think it's great for those people who who want, who know what they want to do when they go to college and they get a major that's tied to a field of endeavor that they want to pursue. That's awesome. Love that. That was not me. And, and, and it's okay if you're like me is my point. 
you know, the best thing I did after I graduated was I went on a long and a slow road trip across America. I had, I had saved up enough money at the ice cream factory that I could go see America. And I traveled across and I witnessed our incredible public lands and I camped there. I didn't really fish at all. I just kind of camped and learned about this incredible American landscape we have. And, and that and that trip to Alaska that I mentioned earlier made me want to become a conservationist. And um, for people who are graduating college, the, the world is open to you. You can do whatever you want and you can go out and get an internship. You know, uh, that's how I got started. I ended up going out and interning essentially for the U.S. Forest Service in Idaho because I wanted to be in salmon country. There's tons of opportunities with our state and federal agencies, natural resource agencies, or agencies like the Forest Service and the BLM or the Park Service to, to intern. You can intern with organizations like Travel Unlimited. And, and just, you know, you're at a point in your life where the funnel is really wide. And don't, don't be stressed out about not knowing what you want to do. I think that's perfectly fine. Um, but Hey, there's there's something to be said for having a job where like Franklin's like Franklin every day is going to work and he is making the world a better place and you know what there aren't many people in America who can say that and so and and, and there are lots of opportunities and, and it's going to be a pain in the neck at first you're going to have to take a low paying sometimes a no paying internship but my gosh, to be able to give back and, and to know that your profession is making the world a better place, that's a gift. That's a gift. And, uh, and, and it might be hard to get in initially, but uh, just don't give up. Just keep calling people, keep making contacts. If you're listening and you want to get involved in conservation and you're not sure where, how to get started, call me. Just call, call me. Seawood at du.org. Um, we need more, we need more advocates for the planet. And, uh, there's a lot of people like me and Franklin and Andrew who want to help you. Absolutely. Rip to your yeah. email and, inbox. <laughs> just <your Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, um, but, uh, yeah, I think that that's important. Um, you know, there's, I feel like the, the best way that I found through college was, uh, always going and asking people. Um, whose job you find compelling and, uh, you know, LinkedIn and all these other sources, you know, you've never had better access to, uh, you know, sending Chris Wood an email or Franklin or I or, or somewhere, uh, someone else that's in whatever line of work you're looking to do. And um, there's often times where uh, there's work, uh, people are looking for work uh, for help um, in this industry too. But uh, Chris, um, I guess some of the, the final questions I would uh, like to ask you is, uh, I guess my final question would be, um, what's your favorite fly pattern? And uh, maybe a little story behind uh, watch favorite. Oh, there's so many places to go with this, but I'll, I'll tell a story that I'm not proud of. And since I know that this is the first, uh, ver the first, you know, version of this podcast that, it's probably not going to be a ton of view listeners initially. Initially, I expected to grow to great, great, great heights. But <laughs> I'll tell you the story. So we we had a guy named Pete Wood. He was a, a guide in Idaho, not not related to me. But he came back and he interned at TU. 
Um, and he was a terrific fisherman and a terrific guide. And uh, I told him how we love to catch carp in the CNO Canal on uh, mulberry flies, right? Because there's mulberry, Texas mulberry trees that drop these mulberries into the canal and the carp come up and everything comes up actually and eats them. And so we tie, you know, out of like chenille and yarn, these mulberry patterns and catch these canal carp and it's super fun. So anyway, I was telling Pete about this and he was like, you know, I never did that. Um, but when I grew up, we used to use bread flies to catch carp. And I said, bread flies? What the hell is that? He says, I'll show you how to make bread flies. And so what he did is he, you know, those sponges they have that have the corrugated, you know, backside and the, 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 you know, front side is a regular sponge. Yeah. Well, yeah. You can buy these all, these all natural sponges like that. Right. And so the, the, the rough side is, it looks, it's, it's, it's all natural. So there's no dyes in it. So it looks like it's got, um, it looks like the, the edge of a crust of bread. And the other side is, is just a little bit off white of the sponge. And so he cut these up into small cubes and he glued a hook through it. Oh, and we just lost said, all the fish. Probably all the purists are gone now. What's that? We just lost every purist <laughs> listening. You, you know what? This is about catching fish, my friend. <laughs> so I'll tell you what I did. I'm about, I'm about to make this. I'm about to make this story even worse for you. So for a week, because I ride my bike to work, for a week, I went down along this one part of the CNO Canal. I threw a handful of bread, cut perfectly into chumming, chumming, probably a half inch by half inch cubes with the crust on them. And and you know what? At the second day, it was so gratifying to see all the fish come up, like they were waiting for me. And I did this for about a week and a half. And then on the 10th day, I took my kids down there and I had one of these bread flies that Pete Wood had tied for me. <laughs> I threw a couple of pieces of bread. The fish came up like a clock. And then I threw that bread fly in and it was Katie bar the door, probably an eight pound carp and a six year old boy holding on fast to my fly rod. <laughs> Carp are fun. I love fishing for carp and they're super hard to catch. So kudos to you for finding a way to, uh, to get them on the hook. So Chris question, uh, did you, or did you not put a, uh, a bead dropper on that? <laughs> does, it make, does it, does it make it better if I did? Yeah, I, th- I think that'd be the dirtiest rig for carp that I've ever heard of. But, uh, I, yeah, I, no, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't chum anymore. But when you're you're taking little kids fishing, the name of the game is catching fish. Oh, and yeah. uh, but I do love, and Franklin probably has tons of tips about like how to you know engage kids in fishing. But uh, I love to carp fish and I don't, I don't chum any longer just so you know, and everyone else knows, but I do love to carp fish. It's one of my favorite forms of fishing. There we have it, Joseph. You want to explain the, uh, the, the competition real quick for, for the viewers? Yeah. What that means? So what that means for, for anyone that's listening, we are going to be doing a little bit of an Instagram competition with each release of, 
this podcast, you'll have two weeks. And basically, we want to see you fish with the fly that our guest mentioned. So, Chris, you went with the the bread fly. This is kind of fun. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that we want to see this. This goes for anybody angling anywhere. Doesn't have to be trout. Doesn't have to be carp. We want to see this tied in like a two-watt saltwater hook. I would love to see that. And I mean, I'm sure you could skate it. You could toss it on, under some mangroves. You could fish for panfish, bass, anything. And we want to see, we're going to have three different categories. We're going to have biggest fish, smallest fish, and most unique catch. So with that being said, you're going to have to tag us on Instagram at Five Rivers. And we'll, uh, we'll put out directions in the, in the podcast blog post too. Yeah. Uh, on our Instagram. And that's a good, that's a good segue into, we're going to have a blog post associated with every episode we do, just in case you want to learn a bit, a little bit more about what we talked about and it'll have information for you to do a little bit of your own research on what we talked about. So if you're interested in the five rivers program and what's what that's about, we'll have links in there. We'll have info in there. Uh, we'll definitely put Chris's email on there for this, for this episode, just so you have another way to get to it. And basically we want to provide you with the most information possible so you can get as much out of this as you can. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, that'll be posted to the TU blog. So I think uh, I think that first one went went pretty well. Thank you, uh, thank you everyone for for coming on and taking the time to to join us today. Uh, I really really love the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks again, Franklin and Chris, for joining. Um, so you Chris, do you kind of- Chris, do you have any your board shirts on? You're already you ready? So funny that you're asking. I just changed into my bathing suit and I'm getting ready to leave. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Anyway, guys, you, you guys did a great job. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of this. I'm really, I'm really pleased to have been invited. And if there's, and do please include my email if people want to reach out to me to figure out how to get involved in conservation. I want to help them. And uh, thank you guys for doing a great job. I think this has got a bright future. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for yeah, joining. Thanks, thank you, everyone, for listening. That was the the first one and i'm pretty excited for where this is gonna go and thanks for uh thanks for listening it was great thanks a lot